You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Let's talk about Otesla. Um, first off, thank all of you for, uh, for being here and in inviting me. If you went to a dermatology meeting uh, like this, there would probably be no dermatologist in the room. And uh, it sounds like this is a great meeting. It's my first time here. Maybe I can uh, be invited back. Um, so, you know, we still don't have a cure for psoriasis. It's still a challenge. Um, there are challenging patients. Uh, there are challenging situations, challenging cases, mixture of things. Certain, certain patients may have just uh, local areas like the scalp um, that just won't clear. And we have newer medications now, uh, Otesla being one. So I'm going to go through and talk about those challenges that I think we all have. Um, talk a little bit about psoriasis um, as a systemic disease. We're starting to think about it much more than skin and joints and what that means and how you would choose medications based on that knowledge. Uh, still a lot of uh, providers prescribing topicals, topical steroids as monotherapy, even for severe patients. Um, and probably we can do better in that realm. Uh, I'm going to get a polling question here in a minute just with the raise of hands on who's comfortable with Otesla, who's prescribing it, and who's not. And I can either move through the talk a little bit quicker or we can take our time through it and maybe get to some questions, some more practical clinical questions at the end. All right. So um, now this is also an interesting slide because of 48 hours ago, maybe Otesla was a cell gene. Uh, product and uh, Celgene, I think, is either owned or got engulfed by Bristol Myers, and and now uh, Otesla is an Amgen product. So I don't know who the company is supporting this today. Sort of a joke there. Uh, because it's uh, promotional, we'll stick with within the FDA guidelines. Um, I'll try not to wiggle out of those guidelines as best I can, but towards the end, if you have some questions, you know, patients don't follow guidelines. If you have some questions that that don't fit, maybe uh, we can talk about those offline. So quick raise of hands, the lights are bright in here, but um, who has um, prescribed Otesla? Yeah, great. So um, that's just about everybody. Uh, so I'll go through this, assuming you're fairly comfortable with either one patient or 100 patients with Otesla and you kind of have a little experience with it, and then maybe we can get to some, some practical questions. All right. Uh, can, you, can you go back one more there? Sorry about that. One more? Oh, yeah. Tricky. Yeah, so Otesla, a primalast, is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, PD4, PDE4, uh, for patients with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, patients who you would think about phototherapy or another systemic medicine, and also psoriatic arthritis. Um, and it's nice to have that overlap. Um, we think of it uh, in patients who are moderate to severe, probably a little bit more moderate than severe uh, types of patients, but there are, so, there are so those certain niche of patients that I particularly like to use Otesla for. Um, it's um, a newer, uh, it's first in class, if you will, for a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. There'll probably be new ones coming down the road. Uh, and new oral uh, molecules, but Otesla was the first in a long time for oral medications. So, uh, if those of you who've raised your hands, who've prescribed 
uh, Otesla, you know that there's some side effects. Um, I think they're easy to deal with once you know about them and discuss them with patients. Um, but certainly patients can have some gastrointestinal upset, certainly early on in uh, the course, first two to four weeks. Diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. I have very few patients that tell me that they truly vomit, but a little upset stomach, uh, maybe you don't have a great appetite, uh, something like that. And usually they can get through it after the first couple of weeks or so. And we can talk about strategies on how to get patients through that. Um, for older patients, um, if, if that's happening, you want to watch them, monitor them a little closely, especially if they have some, some volume loss to make sure they don't get dehydrated. And certainly, they sh you should be in close contact with those patients uh, early on, first couple of weeks, and make sure they have your phone number and to call if they're having GI side effects. And sometimes when you tell the patients to call or if you give them the phone number or something like that, they don't. Uh, so if they're expecting this, I find that they're, they're pretty easy going when it does happen. Depression. Uh, you got to talk about it with patients. Patients can go online, they can read about it. Uh, psoriasis patients, in fact a lot of inflammatory disease patients, have an increased risk of depression. So you do have to take that into account. But uh, in the studies there did seem to be a little bit of an increase uh, risk in depression uh, with Otesla. You need to talk about it with them. Uh, I don't worry about it too much in patients that have never had a history of depression or never been on medication. I still prescribe it for those patients who uh, may have had a history of depression. Probably not if they had suicidal ideation or behavior. Uh, but if they've been on an SSRI or something like that, we'll talk about it. I'll let them know that if, this, if things get worse, we can stop the medication, we can lower the dose or something like that. But you need to let patients know about it. I don't think you should not mention it to them uh, because they'll read about it and ask you, you know, why didn't you tell me about this? If you have somebody who may or not be um, reliable, uh, you may want to talk to their caregiver, something of like a nursing home patient or something like that, just to see if there's signs of, of decreased mood or mentation. Now, it's interesting when you talk about decrease in weight as a side effect or a warning or a precaution. Uh, but it's listed as a, as a precaution or a side effect. Most patients don't mind a little bit of a, a weight, weight drop, 5 or 10% by taking the medication. And it's an interesting phenomenon. It is not related to the GI upset or the diarrhea. It's a separate uh, anti-inflammatory component. I don't think they really understand it very well. But you need to monitor those patients. If they're really losing weight and you have no other reason for them to be losing weight other than being on the Otesla, just know about it. A 5 or 10% loss uh, in you know, 10 to 15% of patients is probably to be expected. Uh, in some of those patients, but if it's more than that, or if it continues, or if a patient feels weak or lethargic or something like that because of the weight loss, I think you probably need to assess it. I've had a few patients um, that, that complained about too much weight loss. They, funny, they started off pretty thin. They weren't heavy to begin with, and we held their medicine for a couple of weeks. They liked the medicine, so we restarted them back on it, and they did fine, but you need to talk to them about uh, weight loss uh, in particular. Drug-drug uh, interactions, uh, there aren't any uh, uh, real no-nos other than the four medicines listed there um, on the slide. Rifampin, phenobarb, and carbamazepine, and phenytoin actually decrease 
the levels of Otesla. Uh, so uh, if you have patients um, on those medications, it's probably contraindicated. You certainly won't get the same levels of a primalast if they're taking those medications. Um, we live in a world of emojis. I was making fun of this particular diarrhea emoji here. I'm not really sure about this guy right here, but um, we'll work on some new emojis for diarrhea later. Uh, but, um, you know, these things happen. The nausea, like I said, is, is real. Um, if any of you guys do drug studies and in any trials, almost everybody has an upper respiratory tract infection, especially uh, if you do it in the winter times. And it's hard to know if that's cause and effect, but it was elevated in the studies, the pivotal studies with Otesla. And a lot of people want to argue about a sinus headache or a tension headache or a headache. There are some definitions about that. But if patients have increased headache, um, one thing you, can, you just know about it for one thing. The other thing you can do is lower the dose temporarily. And a lot of that gets resolved. Hard to know even if it's related to the medication. Um, this is a, a great way to escalate the dose. Uh, part of the reason uh, we did this early on with Otesla is to try to decrease some of the GI side effects. Um, it comes in a little pill blistering pack, so it's very easy to follow for anybody. 10 milligrams, 10 and 10, you go to 20, etc. on up. And after six days, you're on the steady dose of 30 milligrams uh, twice a day. Um, most patients can follow this, and a lot of the uh, samples you can get uh, for starter packs have this same dose escalation which is very nice for patients. Um, I, uh, we'll talk about laboratory work. No laboratory work required with Otesla. Um, patients, uh, psoriasis patients, you know, this is a systemic disease. I get labs still. Uh, most of my patients who, who uh, end up uh, going on Otesla uh, have tried other medications in the past that I've gotten laboratory work for. Um, if they transition off Otesla, I like to know what their health status is. So I do get laboratory uh, work on them. If patients do have a decrease in their creatinine, uh, you should be a little careful, maybe change the dose, lower the dose, or that sort of thing. It's an interesting conundrum because in theory, you're not required uh, to get laboratory work. So how would you know if somebody's creatinine clearance is low? But you can ask them those questions at the beginning of the initiation visit. Um, one thing about that last slide that was present that's very interesting is uh, there's no, no worry with hepatic uh, impairment in using Otesla. And, you know, a lot of patients, uh, maybe 40, 50 percent, um, if you go looking hard enough for it, have, have uh, fatty liver, may have elevated liver enzymes. Um, you know, they could have hepatitis and that sort of thing. It's certainly elevated in psoriasis patients in general. So, uh, just so you know, there's no, no risk of using Otesla with somebody with hepatic impairment. Don't give Otesla to pregnant women. Uh, hasn't been studied well. I've had two patients that became pregnant on it, went off the drug, they had normal uh, babies, but certainly um, not advised to do that. Uh, and certainly with um, Lactation, same thing, just wait until patients are, 
are done. You know, there's really nothing we can do to treat uh, women uh, who are pregnant and or lactating other than light therapy. Uh, even, even some uh, gynecologists occasionally and pediatricians don't really love even topical steroids. Uh, it sort of depends on, on your risk for that, but still, still don't have a good answer for uh, uh, pregnant women. Okay, so that's a little bit of Otesla. I'm not trying to scare you. It's a really good drug to use and, and very effective for our patients. But let's just talk about psoriasis in general and how it's evolved. When I was a resident at Dartmouth in 1996, I showed up and we had an inpatient unit and we had 16 beds and everybody was in a bed full of tar. We'd make rounds in the morning. They'd, put their, they'd stand up, they'd take off their brown um, hospital gown, stand there totally naked, and the nurse would just rub tar all over them. It was, it was, it was surreal. I can't believe we did that, but we did. And then they would sit around a while, and then they'd go get in the light box, and they would stay in the hospital for 10 to 15 days, almost two weeks. And you could clear almost anybody up by doing it that way. And Medicare and all of their uh, wisdom said, you know, this costs $9,000 a hospital stay. That's too much. We're not, we're not paying for this anymore. <laughs> and so the hospital unit, as, as we had it there for psoriasis uh, treatment, went away. Little did they know that the biologics and other things would come along and, and be even more expensive. But um, we've come a long way from understanding what the relationship of a keratinocyte in the skin and the lymphocytes in the skin, and now cytokines have a role in psoriasis. And now we really, really don't think of it as a skin disease. We already knew there was joint involvement, about 30% of patients, maybe more. Uh, but what about all the other organs? There are other organs can be involved as well. And not in every patient, uh, but a lot of our patients, probably half of psoriasis patients have a some variation of metabolic syndrome or other organs being involved. So historically, we've thought about it as a skin disease, maybe a skin and joint disease. So you think about topicals, and patients really like it. It's immediate, right? I can rub it right on the spot. I know it's getting there versus taking systemic medication, which might take a little while. Does it work? What are the side effects? Um, but now we think of it as a skin disease, maybe a joint disease, and other organs. Certainly the liver is involved, maybe heart disease. Um, and lots of other inflammatory uh, uh, changes in metabolic uh, syndrome patients as well. Um, so patients with moderate to severe psoriasis, you know, I mean, my, mild disease is one thing, but moderate to severe is another. Um, I've had uh, a patient who for, for 20 years used topical steroids. He just didn't want to do anything else. Became a, he's a little needle phobic, so we didn't do uh, anything with biologics. He didn't want to take anything orally, but then he got into a relationship. Uh, his scalp was really bad. He had a lot of scale and very hard to treat scalp psoriasis. And <clears throat> again, we talked to him a little bit about the systemic inflammation and psoriasis and things like that. So um, when you have a patient like that, who suddenly becomes a little more motivated to get away from the topicals, it, it allows an introduction to start talking about systemic therapy with whatever you want to use. Um, 
And I think you can use that as a platform to say, well, look, if you really want your scalp to, to be a little more clear, if you really want the rest of your body to be a little more, more clear because of this relationship you just started, you know, we're going to have to probably use something systemic. Obviously, we use a lot of combinations of systemic and topicals, but it's a good way to introduce systemic therapy. A lot of patients are afraid of it. Um, sort of understandable, but if you can really talk to them about it and the benefits maybe of treating this systemically long term, that helps a little bit. Now this is a survey uh, of first line uh, topical monotherapy, so steroids only. Understandable and mild disease, and some of that's the provider and the prescriber, some of that's the patient. Um, I can sort of understand it in moderate, but that's a lot, that's a big number, 88%. What is sort of not understandable is in severe disease, 30% of folks are still using just topical steroids in this particular survey. Could be more, could be less, but probably that's when you should start talking about systemic therapy for patients for all the reasons we just discussed. Um, if you've never talked to your patients or if those of you in here who have psoriasis or some other skin disease where you're always putting on topical medicine, um, it's a pain. They don't like it. They will do it for a while. They'll do it correctly for a very short time and then we all become non-compliant. I'm the most non-compliant patient on the planet. So if you got to tell me to put on five times a day, I might put it on one time a day, right? So. It's very time consuming. Pa patients will tell you it'll, it, uh, out of their week, they've done studies, five to six hours a week, it's smelly, the clothes get sticky. I don't know about you guys, but I can't get out of the house in the morning and you know, I'm rushing out all the way and you know, if you gotta sit there and wait for the ointment or cream to dry and not get on your clothes, it definitely becomes uh, not just a psychological thing to do, but um, it does get in the way of, of life. It's not. It's not always good to put a lot of topical um, medication, including steroids, on the same areas. Certainly the skin folds, hard to get it in the scalp. Nothing really helps with the nails, uh, topically necessarily. Uh, so patients become non-compliant. So when they say it doesn't work, a lot of patients will come in and say, well, you gave me that cream, you gave me this, that, but it doesn't work. You know, what does work mean? Well, you gotta use it twice a day, every day maybe with the moisturizer and you know you you um, need to know it's not a cure you're gonna have to keep doing it and there'll be good days and bad days and they just get tired of that um, so these are ch the, the topical thing works I think we use it for hot spots it works for a short period of time if the disease bur burden is very low but um, this becomes a challenge for patients. It becomes a challenge for us as providers. And again, it offers an opportunity for you to start talking about other systemic therapy. Um, you know, I don't think psoriasis is increasing in the world, but when, again, 20 years ago, it used to be one or 2% of the population, and then it was three. Now there's more data that says it might be up to 5% to in certain age populations. Um, and that's fine. I think probably more people report it now. I think it's, we diagnose it better. It's a little more quick to diagnose it. Um, and a lot of people have been diagnosed, and they're walking around with a diagnosis of psoriasis. There's still maybe one or 2% people out there walking around that have psoriasis that are not diagnosed yet. Uh, in this country alone. So um, the more people uh, know that there's treatment for it, maybe they'll come to us and, and uh, look for therapies. But there's still a heavy burden of disease 
It's very common, probably more common than we think, and there are a lot of people out there that aren't being treated with anything. Um, so, so what about systemic options? Uh, if you take somebody with psoriasis and you're, they're looking at the plaques, you're seeing the plaques, they're rubbing whatever uh, topicals, calcineurin inhibitors on the plaques, uh, take a look at their scalp. A lot of patients have scalp psoriasis that it's very mild, they may not know about it, they may complain of itch, may think it's uh, somebody told them it was seborrheic dermatitis or something like that. Uh, but patients uh, do have a lot of scalp psoriasis uh, even though you may just be seeing their plaque psoriasis. Very common. Nails are tough. Uh, I still don't think we have a good handle on nails or really an outstanding therapy period. Um, you can't really rub topical steroid on the nails and get it to penetrate well. Um, my, my residents, they always want to inject people with intralesional steroid for nails. I'm like, man, that hurts. You know, you're going to keep doing that a couple of times. Let's do it on you first. They don't, they don't like that. But um, it, you, if you can get it into the matrix, it, it does help a little bit. But um, gosh, that's, that's pretty painful. A lot of people have nail disease. And if you have nail disease and you're uh, uh, your sales rep, or a real estate agent or whatever and you're reaching out and you're you're shaking hands all day long with with your nails it does affect um, the psychology of of your occupation if you're a farmer if you're a carpenter um, those nails they have a, a certain amount of inflammation in them they're very tender it does affect uh, mobility and and your occupation so one it's one thing to not like the way the nails look it's another thing functionally uh, to have sore nails and psoriatic nails. Um, so the, I'm gonna, if you can look at this, these are our, our four major buckets for psoriasis. You know, you got your topicals and phototherapy, mostly narrowband uh, UVB these days as a pre-systemic bucket, if you will. And then you have your traditional oral medications uh, and biologics now more in a systemic um, system-wide uh, medications. And, you know, Otesla or Primalast is somewhere right in the middle, I think, sort of uh, after uh, topicals and, and phototherapy and pre-systemic. Um, and I like the way it fits right there. Not, not everybody's willing to jump on the injection train or other medications. Uh, they have somebody in their family that tried it or did this and a bad experience and it's very hard to convince them that that's what to do. They're also frustrated with topicals and the lack of e efficacy or just frustrated by the compliance issues. Um, I live in an area where we'll see patients from two or three hours away just for psoriasis, just for an acne visit and phototherapy becomes not very practical if you're doing it two or three times a week. We've been better at getting home, home light therapy units in patients home who are light patients but for some people they just can't do phototherapy uh, throughout the year. So uh, a primalastro Tesla is sort of right in the middle of that discussion of pre-systemic and, and systemic medications. What about the mechanism of action and, and the, um, the inflammatory mediator effect? So this is an inflammatory cell, could be a lymphocyte, could be a macrophage. So a primalast works intracellularly. It works uh, on the cell and you see these pro-inflammatory mediators in the red on your right, I guess. Yeah, over here, let's see. So you'd like to sort of prevent 
prevent those from increasing. And that is what's happening in psoriasis. So if you can block phosphodiesterase 4 in this case, and you prevent the downstream effect of all these markers, um, it helps. Is it a huge big block? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But IL-22, uh, both IL-17 and IL-F, uh, A and F, and tumor necrosis factor are decreased uh, by the action of Otesla or Primalast. And in general, we know that those inflammatory cytokines are bad or that they increase the rate of um, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and probably all those systemic manifestations as well. So you have this, I wouldn't call it a shotgun effect, but you have this multiple hit on multiple areas of these uh, inflammatory mediators with Otesla. In general, it's a good thing. There are two major studies. If you wanted to go back and look at the good old days, these pivotal trials, esteem one and two, they're very similar, they're set up the same way. One had a little bit higher bar than the other, PASI 75 versus 50. Uh, but you can see that patients either started off uh, on Otesla with the loading dose or escalating dose and getting the 30 milligrams twice a day, uh, or placebo for four uh, months, 16 weeks, and then they were switched over. And then they got into longer term studies. So this is a really good uh, way to look at uh, psoriasis and Otesla. These are really good studies and when you combine them you get a lot of, a lot of data out of them. So we'll, go, we'll come back to this placebo effect in the switch over at 16 weeks on multiple areas when we look through here. Um, just so you know, uh, the inclusion criteria were um, fairly similar to all of the other uh, psoriasis studies that have been done in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, and if you really dive into the uh, patients, these were tough psoriasis patients, so a body surface area of at least 10%, global uh, physician's global assessment at uh, three or greater, and then a PASI score of 12. A PASI score of 12, PASI goes all the way up to 72. 72 is really high, but a PASI score of 12 is not insignificant psoriasis. That's a pretty good dose of psoriasis. The endpoint was PASI 75 at 16 weeks, like a lot of uh, psoriasis studies have been set up. Um, so very similar uh, types of patients, if you will, in these studies compared to other psoriasis medications. Uh, and if you look at the baseline demographics, you know, is it apples and apples? And I can just tell you, it's apples and apples. You can look at it for yourself. Um, uh, as far as the uh, age, gender, body weight, etc. And if you go down here to the bottom, where it says prior biologic therapy. So in general, these are patients that were on biologics and for whatever reason, they didn't work for them or they wanted to go on the uh, Primalast study, about 30%. So these are not, uh, you know, mild uh, psoriasis patients or easy psoriasis patients. Uh, just to highlight apples to apples as far as the PASI scores, body surface area, and the physician's global assessment scores uh, were, were essentially the same. Uh, no statistical difference there. All right. So. Uh, if you look at PASI 75 scores at four months, at 16 weeks, about a third of, of patients were there. 
Um, I would say that if you looked at uh, PASI 50, which is what uh, some patients are very happy with, that number goes up even higher. And if you uh, continue those patients on a little longer, that number bumps up a little bit. Um, can you get higher numbers with other medic medications? You can, but these are patients um, that, for whatever reason, didn't want those other uh, systemic medications. Maybe they tried them and didn't work. Um, and, you know, I, the long and the short of it is that my patients who are on, who started Otesla, still on it, they're very happy. Uh, some patients will tr transition off. They have, may have side effects, which we can talk about. But um, I like this, like I said, as a middle of the road, moderate to severe psoriasis medication. Most uh, men or women, but most women who have uh, scalp psoriasis don't pull their hair back like that, right? So they hide it pretty well. Um, so if you look out uh, to three years, all this data has been carried out for out to three years, and you look at the scalp uh, physician's global assessment scores, uh, and you just look at uh, uh, clear or minimal through those three years, you can see a nice little uh, placebo effect there, which does happen sometimes, a little 19% there. But um, you can see once the switchover was made at 16 weeks, 50 to 60% of those patients were either clear or minimal, uh, minimally um, affected out to three years. That's a lot and that's really good and for those patients they're very, very happy with that amount of, of clearing uh, for their scalp. Um, it's always a conundrum, right, to, um, to say, gosh, you, you, you just have a lot of psoriasis on your scalp, it's not really that bad everywhere else. Am I really going to put somebody on a systemic medication for the scalp. For some people, yes. Uh, for some people, this is really the worst part of their life. Certainly, it's the worst part of their psoriasis. And you have a medicine here that works really well. We haven't talked about side effects or um, ease of use of the medication, but it's also a very safe medication to use um, uh, as far as lab work, needing lab work, and side effects and things like that. Um, what about nails? NAPSI score is sort of the corollary to uh, PASI score. Um, again, nails are hard, and they're harder in, in patients for different reasons, just like we talked about. But you can also look at these um, nail scores. Do not have a placebo effect here. Actually showed a little decrease there. And you can see it takes just a little bit longer because the nails grow a little bit slower to get those numbers up from placebo to the switchover to therapeutic uh, numbers. And, and only 40% compared to the 60% with the scalp, but still very good improvement over time uh, with Otesla. So it is a, it is a good choice for, for nail psoriasis, especially if that's the, the patient's uh, main consideration. And you know some of those, those things matter to patients, but, but a lot of times the number one symptom with psoriasis is itch. We sort of neglect it sometimes, uh, but itch can be a real problem. Itch is a problem because it itches, it distracts you, can't sleep, you scratch, and you get into the scratch itch cycle. So just looking at this, um, these pruritus uh, scores, um, you can see that again over the, the three year period that this was followed, you can see nice improvement in pruritus over time that's sustained. Uh, and patients and physicians notice a decrease in pruritus on this uh, analog score. So scalp, nails, pruritus, itch, 
And if you, <laughs> I was going to joke and say, if you just take Otezo, you have this nice little happy family, right? So um, I, didn't, I didn't make this slide, sorry. Uh, but you know, dad there has a little psoriasis on his face and his arm, but everybody's happy. Uh, so, uh, you know, probably really the, the, the thing we ought to look at is quality of life, right? Um, you know, I've known people will have the worst psoriasis ever, and I feel so bad for them. Um, and they're not mad, and they're like, okay, and they're like, just, they, you know, it's good enough, right? And some people have just a little bit of psoriasis, and it ruins their life, right? And so um, this quality of life, you know, score probably is, is really what we should be following with a lot of patients, and it's not practical to do that in, in the office, but uh, you can ask a few questions, you know, how does this bother you? How does it affect, affect your interaction with your spouse? your children, outdoor activities. Um, you know, I can imagine if I lived in Scottsdale and I had psoriasis all over my legs and everybody else was wearing shorts and you would feel self-conscious about doing that. So um, quality of life, um, we should be looking at it. We probably don't look at it enough, but you should know this. And when you talk to patients when, about Otesla and what about the diarrhea and what about depression and what about this and that, this is a really good data to show that people felt like their quality of life went way up uh, and the quality of life scores there. So yes, there are these little bumps in the road that we've talked about here before, but if you just look at quality of life scores, they go up and then they say sustained for over those three years. Um, do you have to talk about the adverse reactions again? And this is a list of those adverse reactions which we've mentioned before. The top uh, five of those uh, are shown here. Again, we've talked about them before. Um, one of the things I tell people when they go, oh man, diarrhea, vomiting, why would I want to take that? Um, not everybody gets diarrhea, not everybody vomits, and not everybody even has gastrointestinal upset. A lot of people don't have anything. Why did you tell me that? It's fine. Um, the one thing I would take away from that is very few number of people, one to two percent, actually stop the studies because of these side effects. Um, so you can say it's reported, upset stomachs reported, a little nausea is reported, but it wasn't a deal breaker. And my experience is after two to four weeks, uh, you can lower the dose uh, to half the dose, sometimes stop it for a day or two and restart it, and patients uh, feel fine. I would say 90% of the time, my patients, after you just lower the dose um, down to 30 milligrams a day or just stop it for a few days, and they get back on it, they're fine, and these GI symptoms, uh, these GI symptoms go away. So they don't, if, again, when patients are worried about these side effects, I, first of all, I say you may not get any of them, I'm just letting you know. Secondly, they're usually not a deal breaker. They're usually reported in the first two weeks, and they usually go away four weeks, six weeks after, and they tend to get better at that little peak. We can talk about strategies for that. So this never happens. No requirements for routine labs. Uh, there, there are topical medications now that we have to get labs for. So this is a really good indication. Um, probably can't make a, a, a statement on safety, but it's a really good indication uh, when the FDA says, look, there's no lab monitoring requirements here. N nothing was going on with this medication in, in the studies. That includes the liver, um, includes renal function, 
as well as the bone marrow. Uh, and for a lot of patients who may be needle phobic or they just don't want to do uh, a biologic or something like that, you can talk to them about this. In fact, you can start them the day they're in the office. Can't do that with some of the other medications. Um, and so this is also one of those entrees for those patients who are a little worried, a little nervous about systemic therapy um, to tell them that we don't have to do any lab work. Now, I'm a mean guy. And I said, but I still want to get some lab work, at least now and in, in six months, just to check on you. Again, psoriasis patients, this is a systemic disease, you know. Uh, I kind of want to know what's going on. And if you transition them to another medication, I'd like to know what their baseline was to begin with. But you don't have to. Um, all right. So as far as expectations go, if you choose to um, start a patient, uh, on Otesla for moderate to severe psoriasis. Um, can you go back one? Sorry. I'm afraid to hit the button here. Well, okay, fine. Um, so, when you talk about uh, PASI uh, scores, you can tell patients that, um, you know, 30, 35% of patients uh, de had a decrease in 75% of their psoriasis. That's a fair statement. Um, are there other medications that are higher than that? that? That's true. But these are patients that are either reluctant to go on a systemic therapy. Um, this may be their first entry into systemic therapy as well. And I'll just tell you, for a lot of patients, this is um, not only good enough, they're very happy uh, with it without uh, avoiding all the other things we've talked about. So I, I like it, and if you, if you set the tone from the beginning, um, I think you do a lot better with those patients. Um, how do you take it? There's a starter pack. It, uh, we don't get samples, at, we can't have samples at Dartmouth, but, but probably most of you can, and I would do that, have the starter pack in your office. Again, you can start them that day. You can start them that day while you're waiting for the prior authorization to clear. It's kind of nice. Um, and. Uh, that, that starter pack, like I said, it's very easy to take. You don't have to sit there and go over each day of the dose escalation. Side effects. Um, you know, sometimes if you talk too much about side effects, uh, you're sure that the patients are going to get them all, right? Uh, having said that, the GI stuff is real. I would, I would say you should talk to them about that. Uh, maybe overemphasize it, and sometimes it's, it, it, it's a little less than they thought. Uh, and then mention those things like depression and, and the weight loss just as a FYI. I usually bring patients back in, in two to four weeks depending on their situation just to see how they're doing. Um, that, that two to three week period is where if they have some GI side effects, um, they'll, they'll have them then and they'll want to talk about it. My nurses know to tell them, you know, what I do is just lower the, if it's really bad, we just lower the dose to one pill uh, per day, and almost always that takes care of it. And then, you know, uh, some of my patients will just say, look, I'm fine, my skin's clearing up, I'm just gonna stay on one and, and not two. So that's obviously off-label, but why not reduce the dose if, if you can? Uh, some patients will go back on the 30 twice a day. They do fine there too without the GI side effects. Um, so, uh, you know, 
when you're talking to patients about systemic therapy, no matter what you use, it's probably time for all of us to start talking about it in the realm of a systemic disease rather than just a skin disease or just a joint disease. The same inflammation that's, that's hurting your joints uh, and that you can see on your skin is probably doing something to your other internal organs. You just can't see it necessarily. And if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, nothing happens. It's later on where that may or may not happen. So we probably should talk to patients, no matter what the systemic therapy is, uh, about the systemic effects or the systemic nature of psoriasis. All right. So um, this, the, there are lots of ways that whoever the company that owns a Tesla is now uh, can help you get patients started. There's the bridge program. There's the starter pack. You can keep it in your office. Obviously, you can have samples. Um, in the beginning, uh, we had a lot of trouble uh, getting the prior authorizations for a Tesla. I haven't had a, a denial that we couldn't get through in the last six or seven months. Uh, and uh, we, we uh, created our own specialty pharmacy at Dartmouth. But there's a way to do it. You, you know, you do have to have somebody faxing this and making a phone call with that. But it's much better now to get Otesla approved than it was several years ago. Um, so talk to your, your rep or your MSL or whoever about uh, getting these different uh, patient starter packs in your office so that it makes it much easier, much easier discussion. I really like it um, uh, if you can have that starter pack and the patient, you know, you can give it to the patient that day. It's a huge boost for them. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. Um, and I think there are questions. I think there, okay, here we go. Uh, so I'll start at the We've got time, so we can just do this. Uh, can one take one of the generic COPD phosphodiesterase inhibitors and see skin improvement? So it's interesting. Uh, PDE4 just isn't um, PDE4. There are variations of PDE4 that we don't go into here. Um, uh, one of my best buddies at Dartmouth is a, is a pulmonary guy, and we talk about this a lot. Um, and I, I don't think it's recommended, first of all, that you do that. And I don't think it works quite the same way as a primalas. But, um, it, you know, it's an interesting thought. And these phosphodiesterase inhibitors, who knows the, the type of inflammation they're, they're helping, in this case, in the lung. So um, I, my experience through my pulmonology friend is that it doesn't work quite as well. Anybody else have any other thoughts on that? Okay. Comorbidities with, I'm going to assume diabetes mellitus being a comorbidity. Um, we have a derm room clinic and that stands for dermatomyositis, but okay. Uh, do you check um, labs to assess renal dosing? So um, I, I do. I t you know, I told you I do. I, um, these, these patients aren't necessarily sick, but they have things going on and I just like to know they're okay. So I do, I do check renal, uh, liver, uh, etc just to know where we're starting. All right, patients see these biologic commercials <laughs> and mock the fact that biologics have all the dangerous side effects. However, the patients who mock these commercials are also on four oral non-commercialized medications to treat their diabetes, hypertension. How do you convert these patients to not be afraid of biologics after they have failed topicals and phototherapy? 
Yeah, um, so this is more about biologics. Um, so I'll talk about biologics in that sense. Um, you know, the first time you prescribe a biologic and, and you know, you, ha you don't have 10 years of data, it's, it's tough, right? It's, you, don't, you don't know what's going to happen, but um, we have lots of data now on biologics and outcomes and side effects and risk. And, you know, short of tuberculosis, which we know about, um, uh, you know, we don't, I don't see a lot of uh, side effects or worry or risk even with the biologics anymore, and they continue to get safer and safer. So um, I, would, I would say I answer um, them, and what, what the wording was convert. I convert them. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing. But I, I convert them with data, you know. The data is that, that we're not hurting the vast majority of patients on biologics. Um, and most, most people understand that. Most people know somebody that's been on it. And, uh, you know, you could argue that some of the newer biologics, we don't know about them very much. But in general, they tend to get more and more uh, safe, not, um, not more risky. All right. Have they, oh, Tesla, have they tried higher doses to get better results with Otesla? or any personal experiences. Yeah, so there, there was, in the beginning, dose-ranging studies higher, even lower. Uh, this, is, this is probably the sweet spot, 30 milligrams twice a day for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Um, I don't think we got very much more improvement with the higher doses. And yes, maybe I've experimented with higher doses and things like that. The GI symptoms come into play a little bit, and we didn't see that much of a benefit. So to me, this is probably appropriately dosed at the 30 milligrams twice a day. All right, Otesla. Any comments on using Otesla in a patient with positive cosi serologies and no evidence of active infection? I don't uh, have any experience with doing that. Um, you know, I'm not really sure what that, that means. Uh, the, the actual tests or what it means. Um, so way off label here, just tell you how I think about Otesla with my oncology colleagues and infectious disease colleagues is we worry about it less than we do with almost everything else as far as infection risk and, and cancer risk, say in a breast cancer patient or something like that. That's my own personal uh, assessment with, with my other physicians that I work with. Um, in general, if there's no active infection, no matter what it is, you're, you're probably okay. Patients uh, with psoriasis tend to have some staph colonization. We treat them with all kinds of things and they do okay. So if they don't have any active, you know, symptoms, um, I'm pretty okay. The way I treat patients is I'm pretty okay with it. Um, yeah, what about palmar plantar disease or pustular? So let's just take palmar plantar. Um, thank you for whoever asked that question. I think Otesla is fantastic for the hands and feet, better than almost all of the other biologics. I don't know why it works so well there, uh, but it, it might work better there than even other locations. It's, it's my go-to medicine for palmar plantar, uh, thick, the hyperkeratosis, a type of, of palmar plantar disease. Now for pustular disease, not so much. It can help, it does help, but I, I still go back to uh, PUVA therapy uh, myself for, for pustular psoriasis of the hands and feet. If you're talking about a generalized erythrodermic pustular uh, flare, that's, that's a little bit different. So I really like Otesla for, for palmar plantar 
uh, psoriasis, and my patients do too. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why it works so well there, but it does. And there's they, in these in these studies, they've cut out some data looking at at that, which supports that notion. So I think we just got cut off. So okay, thank you very much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.